Alright, we are now at week 12. The covenant and the means of grace. Last week. So where should we begin? Thank you. Alright, it's 3 a.m. What are the elements of a covenant? See, now you're not going to have me reminding you every week now. So now you're, you're relying on each other. So, I don't know. Do you think it's a good idea for me to ask husbands to poke their wives at 3 a.m. and say, tell me the elements of a covenant? Okay, you can do that, but first, as a former attorney, um, I have a, a waiver of responsibility for you to sign. Because I don't want to get in trouble for that. All right, these are the elements of a covenant. Now, we went through and looked at what covenants were in the Scriptures, how God relates to mankind. And we looked first at a covenant of works. We have our four elements, right? What were those elements in the covenant of works? Who were the parties? With Adam representing all men. The condition was. The promise was. Eternal life, communion with God forever. And the penalty or curse was. And that death had three aspects. Spiritual, physical, and judicial. Okay? And so what that means is the way the world works is God created man. God entered into a covenant with man. Man broke that covenant. And man is now incapable of keeping that covenant. What I have just described for you in those couple of sentences is the best, concise, easy way to remember the beginnings of a gospel presentation. You could say, God has created man. God entered into a relationship with man. It was man that broke the relationship. And now because of that, we are bent and we cannot do what God has required of us. God in His grace provided for redemption by a second covenant of grace. And so when you say... We're sinners, Adam sinned, and someone says, well, I just think I deserve a second chance. You could say, God gave you one. But there's conditions to that, too. Right? The covenant of grace, who are the parties? God and Christ. What is the condition? What is the promise? That God will be our God in the forgiveness of sins. And what's the penalty? There is none because God always fulfills. And so when someone says, I just want a second chance, you say, that's interesting you say that. God is the God of second chances. He made a second covenant with Jesus Christ as your representative. And the condition is that you need to believe on Jesus. So if you want a second chance, you need to believe on Jesus. Who sets the terms of the covenant of grace? Who fulfills the conditions of the covenant of grace? Who is the focus of the covenant of grace? It is God, not man. That's another thing for us to remember, not only in our evangelism, but in our own lives. Because what the devil wants to do is twist everything that's true and turn it upside down. He wants you thinking about what you have to do, how you have failed, how you don't measure up, how it all relies upon you, so that every time something goes wrong, you could think God hates you. And you answer the devil and you say, it depends on God, not on me. God sets the terms of salvation. He makes that salvation effectual by His power. And that covenant promise of salvation is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is another thing we need to remember. It has gotten into our American psyche that salvation is escaping hell. And then we think we have done all we need to do if we walk up to a campfire, say, I believe in Jesus, I'm not going to hell anymore, thank you God, I can get on with my life. That is not salvation. Salvation is that God will be our God and have a relationship with us and will bring us life and joy, and peace, and eternal relationship with Him. This is the way we have to think about salvation. 
in the covenant of grace, what essentially happens? Essentially, God credits the righteousness of Christ to the believer. Now, if you think about under the covenant of grace, the fancy theological term, which you can use in Starbucks, is imputation. Someone says, I don't understand how this Jesus thing works. While they're sipping a latte, you say, well, you need to understand imputation. The unfancy way when you're talking with kids is credited, counts. And there are three great imputations in the Bible. Adam's sin is credited, accounted to us when we are in Adam. Our sin in Christ is accounted to Jesus. He could pay for it for us. And Jesus' righteousness is counted as ours. Every time he obeyed, every time he did not sin, is credited to our account. It is a transfer from being under Adam with death and sin and misery to being under Jesus. And if you think through this, not only is that biblical, it is richer than the way we see the the gospel presented every day. And People wonder, well, why would God forgive us? Well, why would Jesus do this? Why should I believe? This gives us a structure because it's in the context of a relationship. People understand relationships. God wants a people for himself. Jesus wants a people. He will win a people. And so he will do whatever it takes. You talk to any mom. She will do anything that it takes to keep her kids safe. Right? They understand that. And then you say, that's the way Jesus views his people. He will go to the uttermost to get his people. And then people can kind of make some sense of that. How does God relate to us? Well, under the covenant of works, there is Adam. The watchword is, do this and live. The only problem is now, none of us can do. So if we can't do this and live, what do we do? We don't do this and we die. The alternative is not to try harder at doing. The alternative is to be under Christ, where the motto is, the just shall live by faith. Now, even that phrase which comes from Habakkuk and then is picked up by Paul in Romans, in some sense makes no sense. How are people who are just living by faith, the just live by doing things right? That's how you tell whether someone's just or not, right? The only way this makes sense is if Jesus has worked on our behalf. It's the only way it makes sense. So it crystallizes the gospel for us. It doesn't allow us to play on the ends, on the parameters, and find some benefit in us. Now, if we are saved in a relationship context if we are saved to a relationship context, covenantally, we looked and we saw that that meant that all of the things that flow from salvation have relationship contexts. That's what a covenant is. So, if you're talking to a co-worker, or a fellow teacher, or a student, you don't need to say, you need to understand the covenants and separating animals, and asymmetrical synergism. Although I do like when you use that. All you need to say to somebody is, do you understand what it is to be in a relationship? Well, yeah. Well, the reason we have relationships is because God is a God of relationships. We are made in His image. Really? Explain that to me. You're off to the races. Covenantal thinking is relational thinking. The way God relates to us The structure of that relationship is a covenant. Someone says, well, I don't know. I I never heard of a relationship that had structure. Oh, you've never been to a wedding then, ever in your life, have you? No. You've actually never seen a child with a birth certificate and responsibilities, have you? Relationships have structures. As a matter of fact, most of what's wrong with the world today is trying to have relationships without structure, which means they're not real relationships And that means people get hurt. Remember, the family 
is not just a bedrock of society. It is not just something that is good morally. It is founded in God and who He is. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that God is the one by whom all fatherhood is named. We have fathers because God is a father. This is another point of apologetic. We don't judge God by goodness, do we? Why? God is the standard of goodness. We don't judge fatherhood, God by fatherhood, do we? Why? Because God is the standard of fatherhood. God is the standard. There is no abstract platonic ideal of justice or goodness or mercy. It is the personality of God. Marriage takes on a covenantal view as well, right? Because it's a picture of God's relationship with His people and specifically of Christ's covenant with His church. Paul puts it this way in one of the best passages. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So he's showing us the relationship that is built on a relationship with the Trinity. Now, this is the best way to understand marriage. What does the Bible teach? Who is the head of the household? The husband. Does that mean it's because the husband's smarter? Or the husband's better? Or the husband's morally superior? Now, you need to be careful before you answer that. Because if you answer yes to any of those, what you've just said is God the Father is better than God the Son. Because that's what Paul says. Paul says God is the head of Christ. It is not about worth. It is not about intrinsic value. It is about economic um, setting forth, job description, as it were. And so, as wives submit to their husbands and as husbands love their wives, it is a picture of not only Christ's relationship with the church, but of relationship within the Trinity. And so we have to understand that there is equality there of men and women. Everybody with me so far? Nod your heads. There you go, that's good. It's not bobblehead night, but but still, it makes me feel good. All right. We saw in work the same sort of thing. That not just in the home, but outside the home. Let me again encourage you. There is a curse going on in America today that says that the way we view God and our relationship with Lord, with the Lord is compartmentalized into a small area. It could be at church. It could be at home. But don't take it out to your work. Don't take it out to the public sphere. Don't take it out in your life. And the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. The Bible tells us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And the Bible tells us that part of our lives is work. We were designed for work. Remember, work is not a curse. Adam had work in the garden. Work is designed to glorify God. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. We saw that work fulfills God's will in us. Ephesians 4.28. You remember what the thief is supposed to do? What's the thief supposed to do? Number one, stop stealing. Exactly. That's where you start. Stop. Is that enough? No. Then what does the thief have to do? He needs to work. And why? So that he has some to share with others. It glorifies God. There is a principle here. Work also testifies to the change that Jesus makes in us. And so Paul can say, listen, if you say you're a Christian, and you are a lazy bum who will not take care of his family, then you are worse than an infidel. You are belying the profession. If you really love Jesus, you will take care of the people that Jesus has given to you. And you will work hard, and God will bless you. And so, what we do, not only is a testimony to others, it certainly is, but our obedience to the Lord is a way that we can assure ourselves of the change that Jesus has made in us. Remember, our work doesn't make the change. 
Our work isn't required for the change. But it is wonderful for our assurance because we see that God is at work in us. Right? Then we looked at the church. And we saw that the church was the covenantal community of God. And that God does not save us for our own individual ends. This is part of covenantal thinking because we come to the Bible with eyes and minds that are already shaped. Right? We don't come as a blank slate, do we? Where do you live? Rich, Katie, where? Where is that? What country? America. What century? 21st century. Don't pretend like it's not true. Don't pretend like you're a 5th century Hebrew. You're not. You're a 21st century American. Right? Even if you come from Brazil, you live and you work and you do everything in America. Right? Now, where we grew up colors us too. What kind of a family? Big family. Small family. Foreign country. Country. City. It affects us. And we have to understand that we bring those kind of glasses to the Bible. American 21st century glasses are individualistic glasses. It's all about me and God. It's all about what I want. Salvation is with respect to me. I don't have to worry about anybody else. It's all very individualistic. And that is all very unbiblical. The Bible way of looking at salvation is that it is absolutely an individual relationship with the Lord that then brings you into relationship with the people of God. Every place you look in the Bible where it talks about eternity, Revelation, Romans, Matthew, every place you look, it's the feast, right? It's the marriage, it's the throngs, it's the people who can't be numbered, it's corporate, individuals having a relationship, but in a corporate body. We don't lose our individuality, do we? How many of you grew up in a family where you had at least one sibling? Right? Most of us. Right? You're a part of a family. You do not lose your individuality, do you? Even those of us, I think we have a few here that are twins. Does that mean you were just like your twin? No, you don't lose your individuality, but you are part of a greater group, that family. That's the way salvation works. God calls people to relationship with Him, and that brings us into communion with each other. Right? We're all sitting here today. Do we all have everything in common? We don't even all like the same sports teams let alone something that's important. Right? What binds us together is our relationship with Jesus. That is what binds us together. And our union with Christ is the source of communion with fellow believers. So therefore, the purpose of the church we saw was to be God's dwelling among men on earth. And then the focus of the church should be both objective, looking at our union with Christ, and subjective. We should be looking together in union in goals and where we are going. We should be looking both upward toward God in worship and outward toward evangelism, not inward. We are a work in process as the church. We're not done yet. Right? We don't need to polish the brass. We need to get everybody on board the ship. And we saw that these marks of the church involved worship, that is the ministry of the Word and the sacraments, the exercise of discipline and evangelism. This is what makes the church the church, the covenant people of God. We looked and we saw that worship was for God. It's not for us. That is the great lie of modern American evangelicalism. What do I get out of worship? What do I like about worship? No, worship is to be God-centered because it is to be the place where God's glory is seen. 
Everybody with me so far? You got your review. You ready to go forward? All right. So now what we're going to talk about is the means of grace. And we have to understand this principle. God doesn't just decree the end. God doesn't just say, this is where I want you to end up. Go ahead and figure it out. No. He not only decrees the end, He decrees the means that get us to the end. Right? And we call these means of God building up His people the means of grace. And so the church, which is God's chosen vehicle, right? It's God's chosen vehicle for evangelism and for building up the people of God. Why? Because the church is efficient? you got to be kidding me. Which would be more efficient? To do evangelism through the church or angels? I pick angels. Kapow! Behold! Right? Look! To you a son is given. Oh, okay, angel. Yeah, all right, all right, okay, I believe. Right? What do you have? Kapow, behold, or... Well, listen, can I talk to you about something? Um, um, let me see. I think it's in that... Wait, hold on. Right? He doesn't use the church because it's efficient. He doesn't use the church because we're good at it. He uses the church. Why? Because he chose it. Because it's the means. And the church administers this covenant of grace. That's the people of God through the means of grace, through the preaching of the Word, through the administration of the sacraments, through prayer and through praise. We testify to who Jesus is to others. We build up the body of Christ. The church is the covenantal chosen instrument of God. It is the corporate expression of God's glory. It is what is designed to bring the gospel. It is the place for edification, communion, and grace. I'm telling you, this is what the church is in the Bible. Then what does that mean then for us? An expression, a local body of the church. What does that mean we need to be as Christ's church? Cheat. We need to be what? We need to be an expression of God's glory. What else do we need to be? We need to be bringers of the gospel. What else do we need to be? A place where people are built up. We don't just bring people the gospel and say, have a nice life. We say, you just scratched the surface. I know that because I've just scratched the surface. Come along with me and let's read the Bible together. This is not just theoretical. This is exactly who Christ Church in Katy, Texas is called to be. This kind of covenantal community. The church is to proclaim God's covenant that is His will for His people. This is what Matthew 28 is all around, all about. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we got to have the Great Commission. we got to tell people something about Jesus. Hurry, run. Let's go tell people about Jesus. Well, sort of. Why are we going to go tell people about Jesus? We're going to go tell people about Jesus because we're declaring what the will of God the Father is. That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness of sins. And then you will obey what God has given in His Word as His children. This is the Great Commission. This is our task. There should not exist in America one parachurch organization. Not one. I'm glad there are, because the church has fallen down on the job. We wouldn't need Campus Crusade for Christ if the church was on the campuses. We wouldn't need the Salvation Army to feed people if the church was feeding people. We wouldn't need family counseling centers if the church was counseling people. We would need evangelism explosion if the church was evangelizing. Now, we could stand here and woe and bemoan and etc., or we can say, you know what? 
God is doing things for His glory even in spite of the church. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get on the campuses. Let's help Campus Crusade. Let's get doing evangelism. Let's help evangelism explosion. Let's get working and doing what the church has been called to do. Right? This is what we are called for. Now remember, this is true of Big C Church. It's also true of Small C Church. Right? Who's the body of Christ? Y'all are, right? Not one of you two. Y'all, all y'all. Use the big plural. That's what I was told. There's y'all as a singular and then there's all y'all, which is the plural. Nobody understands me when I, you know, where I grew up, it was you guys. Use guys. Use guys. <clears throat> all right. What are these means of grace? They are the benefits of Christ's mediation. What does that mean? Jesus is the mediator of the covenant. All of the benefits that Jesus gets in the covenant come to us. How do they come to us? Do they float through the air? Is there a magical mystery tour? No. They come to us through the means of grace. Our catechism puts it this way. The means of grace are especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. All of which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. The means of grace have real power. So, one of the benefits of Christ's mediation is that we are taken out from under Adam to being under Jesus, not being under sin, but being under righteousness and life. Right? How do we get from here to here. What? Faith. We have to believe, right? How do we believe? We hear the Word. So the Word creates faith in us, and then we believe, and then we are transformed. You see, there's a means of grace. It's God's work. But the Word has real power. So these means of grace are prayer, the sacraments, and the Word. Now, I want you to note here, our catechism has an interesting way of putting things to draw our attention. Moms do this. You need to clean the bathroom, especially the counter, because it's disgusting. Right? Teenage boys, right? Former teenage boys. Does that mean you just clean the counter? Does that mean you clean the counter just like every other place? That means you clean everything, but you better pay attention to the counter because it's important. That's what it means here when it talks about the means of grace. Prayer and the sacraments are means of grace, but the Word is especially a means of grace and especially the preaching of the Word. Why? How do we know how we should pray? Where do you learn how to pray? How do you know what the sacraments are? What authority are the sacraments under? The Word. The Word is primary. doesn't mean prayer is unimportant. doesn't mean the sacraments are unimportant. It means they depend on the Word. How do I know what the Word is? How do I understand the Word? What does the Ethiopian eunuch say? Well, I got this Isaiah here, but how do I know what I'm supposed to do? How will I understand it unless what? Somebody explain it to me. When they explain it to me, then I know. Right? That's what preaching is. Aside, that's why preaching at Christ Church is the exposition of books of the Bible. It's exhortation and explanation. Because you need to know not just what I think is important or good, but what the Bible teaches. So we start then with the Word of God. Who is used by God to bring the effectual Word to His people? What happens when the Word is made effectual? How is the Word to be brought to God's people? These are the three main questions we're going to answer about the Word. So first, who brings the Word? Well, remember, our covenant God does not leave us to our own efforts. He is bringing us into relationship with Himself. So He doesn't say, Oh, um... Go go find uh, some wisdom. 
oh, go, go, go find some Bible and look at it and maybe you'll figure it out. No. He does not abandon us. If you have Bibles with me, with you, turn with me to John 16. Jesus says this in verse 5. But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is what? To your advantage that I go away. Stop. Would anybody here, period there, think it would be a good thing to my advantage for Jesus to leave me? It is. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and will what? Declare it to you. All the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Jesus has all that is whom's? The Father's. The Spirit declares what? What is the Son's? So what is the Spirit declaring? Transitive property math, people. The Father's. All wrapped up. The Trinity. Jesus says it is to your advantage that He is gone because He sends the Spirit. You think about that for a minute. And then think about how much more blessed you are than Moses, Abraham, Peter, John, David, Paul... You have the whole Bible and you have the Spirit. You have a greater advantage than anybody in the Bible. Think about that. It's the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about Christ giving teachers, giving blessings to the Lord, to His people. Scripture constantly links the hearing of word, of the Word and life. Isaiah puts it this way. We see it in Deuteronomy, in John, in the Psalms. But Isaiah 55 says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy milk and wine without money and without price. The scriptures are linked to our most basic thing we need. Drink and food. Can you live without food? I don't even like to go a day without food. Can you live without drink? I don't even like to go two hours without drink. You've seen it. Your kids are sitting in here in service, or especially in evening service, and about two, three times a night, they say, Dad, can I go to the drink of fountain? i got to go get a drink. We don't like to be without drink. That's the way the Word is to us. We can't live at all without the Word. Well, what happens by the Word? Remember what we just read in verses 8 through 11. Conviction of sin is brought by the Word. Enlightenment is brought by the Word. Humility for man and glory for God. The Word puts us in our place. The Word tells us the way the world is and what God has done. It is by the Word that we are driven from ourselves and to Christ. How does that happen? The Word tells you you're a sinner and you have no hope and you need Jesus. The Word then tells us that we are to be made more like Christ. It tells us how we are to be built up and how we are edified. 
How we figure this out is through the Word of God. And when we move away from the Word of God, when we try and create our own means of grace, we take ourselves out of God's will and God's plan for the church and each individual person. And we start experiencing all sorts of problems. This is why Satan always starts attacks on the Bible. How many of you are upset by the legalization of homosexual marriage? The attacks on the Bible are 150 years older than that. Satan's been at work for 150 years undermining the authority of the Scriptures. That precedes no-fault divorce. It precedes um, gay marriage. It precedes um, all sorts of ills in our society. The attacks first come on the Bible because when Satan can get us off the Bible and get us thinking, then not only do we start making mistakes, then it's whatever 51% of the people throw their hands up for. Right? The Word is what strengthens us. You remember in... Well, I have Matthew 4, but you remember in Luke 4. How did our Lord deal with temptation? Came right back with the Word to Satan. What happens by the Word? Well, that is how salvation is brought. Romans 10.14 especially. How are they to hear without someone preaching? They have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. How are they going to call on Him unless they believe? How are they going to believe unless someone tells them? How is someone going to tell them unless someone's sent? That's Paul's point. The Word is what drives evangelism. The call of the Gospel goes forward by the Word. And then it's not just that it's used for evangelism. No, it's also used once we are brought into covenant relationship with God, we are established and comforted in faith. So Paul can write later in Romans 16, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and what? And preaching. Now how does this happen? Well, the Bible tells us that God has willed that there are two people involved in the effectual application of the Word. The first is, of course, the preacher. The second is the hearer, right? There are two people involved in that transmission of the Word. So when the Word is preached, the preacher needs to be sure that the doctrine is sound. Paul's advice to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Preaching must be plain and in the Spirit. Now, we have been together 13 weeks And I have taught you one mouthful phrase. What is it? Asymmetrical synergism. Imagine if you got three of those every sermon. Right? You wouldn't be able to know which way is up. Preaching needs to be plain and clear. Now, that doesn't just apply to the preacher. That means if you want to tell people about Jesus... You don't need to use fancy words. You can be plain and clear, which is actually biblical. Paul says, My speech and my wisdom were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. Paul actually complains a little bit. He says, I came to you with such plain speech, you didn't accept it because you wanted it to be fancier. He says, I'm supposed to give you the word plainly. The preacher must be diligent as he preaches. So Paul says, for for example, in Acts 18, verse 25, we see that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit, and he spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus. He did a lot of work. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Come on, Timothy. There he is. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. The preacher needs to be prepared and ready. Now, this is where this preacher does not like 
when some people preach by deciding what they're going to teach on 30 seconds before they walk in the pulpit. And they just talk. And you know what you get when you get that? You get whatever's on their mind over and 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 over again. Right? It's just who we are. If I asked you to sing a song, and now you'd sing your favorite song. And if next week I asked you to sing a song, now you'd sing the same song. Because it's in your mind. The preacher needs to prepare. The preacher needs to know the people. That's why preachers are to be pastors. Knowing the people, knowing their hurts, knowing their needs, knowing their fears, knowing their strengths. The preacher needs to preach with a love toward Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, if one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that all might live, all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If a preacher doesn't love the people, he's got no business in the pulpit. Because it's communicating that message. The preaching needs to be concerned with the salvation of sinners. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. God, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. No, that's... that's I'm sorry, that's 6.16. 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The preacher needs to be concerned not just abstractly with the salvation of sinners, not just putting notches on his belt, but with a love for the actual souls of men. Um, Horatius Bonar put it this way, you are to preach as a dying man to dying men. We don't know that all of us will show up at evening service. One of us could be in an accident, have a heart attack, get ill. We don't know. That's the way we need to treat the Word of God. Not as something to be put off, not as something that can wait, but something that is of immediate need. And of course, the Word preached needs to be for the glory of God. But there's a job for y'all too. The word needs to be heard with diligence and with preparation. Proverbs 8, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates and beside my doors. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 to put away all sins and malice and to desire the word like a baby desires milk. What happens when a baby doesn't get food? Screams and cries until what? Until you give it to him. Luke chapter 8, verse 18 says this, Take care how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And to the one who has not, even that which he thinks he has will be taken away. You need to be prepared and diligent in hearing. The word needs to be heard with prayer. I'm going to ask you a silent question. Nobody answer. How many of you all prayed in the car here or before worship? that God would strike you with His Word and that you would hear properly and the Spirit would speak to you. It doesn't all just happen in the pulpit, folks. You need to prepare. Praying needs to happen here. Praying needs to happen out here, too. We need to hear the Word of God. You need to examine the Scriptures. I'm not perfect. You need to look. What did he really mean by that? Well, he read this passage in Luke. What does Mark say? What does Matthew say? Search the Scriptures. But you need to foremost receive the truth with faith and love. Hell is full of people that nodded your head, their heads and say, you know what, that, yeah, that makes sense, some sense to me. It needs to be mixed with faith and love. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. They perished who did not unite their listening with faith. 
And those perished in a wicked deception, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, who refused not just to hear the truth, but to love the truth. You have to meditate on the Word. You know the phrase from Psalm 119, Your Word I have hidden in my heart. Give more earnest heed to things you've heard, lest you drift away. Hebrews 2. You need to bring forth the fruit of the Word in your life. It is something that bears fruit. James puts it wonderfully. He says, somebody that looks at the perfect law, that is the Word of God, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You don't just hear the Word, you put it into operation in your life. You don't just hear, God wants me to love my wife. You go home and you love your wife. You put it into action. Right? So that's the Word of God. Secondly and briefly, there's another means of grace, that is the sacraments. What is a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a means of grace that is given by Christ to His people, now here's the key, to signify and apply God's covenant to their lives. It's like a covenant signpost, a reminder, a post-it note, if you will. Much more than a post-it note, but you know how we do that? Moms especially do that, right? They put notes on the cabinets and on the fridge, remind them what to do. In my house, you are not allowed to say, we're out of butter, we're out of milk. Because as soon as you say that, like a shot, my wife says, put it on the list. Put it on the list. I want to be reminded when I go, don't tell me we're out of butter, put it on the list. And you know what happens when you don't put it on the list? You don't get it. I'm just telling you. So the sacraments are like that. It's a reminder for us of God's relationship to us. Now, the sacraments don't have any power in and of themselves. They're like the Word, right? How much power does this have by itself? Looks a lot like Shakespeare, doesn't it? Or Plato? Or Descartes? Or magazines, people, magazine, right? It's ink on white with words. There's no power in the Word itself. The power is in the working of God through the Word because it is His means of grace. The same is true of the sacraments. They are like the Word. They depend on the work of the Spirit. And they are signs and seals, visible sermons, if you will. And they cannot, therefore, be separated from the Word. They are signs of the covenant. Now, a sign is something that makes something else known. The sacraments don't declare something about themselves, but about God's grace. Right? If we were to get in a car and drive east and see a sign that said, Beaumont is the sign Beaumont, what does the sign do? It tells us where Beaumont is. Right? And if we want to go to Beaumont, do we go to the sign? We actually go to Beaumont, don't we? The sacraments are the same way. They don't point to themselves. We don't get caught up in them. They point us to God and His grace. One example here. Moses' rod was a sign that God appeared to him. It drives me nuts. I I love things like Indiana Jones and the... uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Somehow I think as Christians, we think it's like Indiana Jones. Like if Pharaoh would have gotten a hold of Moses' rod, Pharaoh could have done whatever he wanted, right? I mean, seriously. This is the Ark of God, and somehow if the Nazis get it, they're going to use God as a weapon. No. It is not in the thing. It is in pointing to the power and the grace that's there in God. There are not only signs, there are also seals. Seals authenticate or confirm something. Its benefit is for the recipient, not the giver, to tell the recipient they have something. It doesn't cause something, it only confirms it. The best example of this is a diploma. Is a diploma your education? Is a diploma your knowledge? 
No, a diploma isn't even a lot of money you spent on it, is it? No. The diploma is a confirmation that you have done the courses and gained the knowledge. It's a confirmation. You can hang it up on your wall and be reminded, I did do that, didn't I? Right? But the diploma is nothing in and of itself. It is a sign and a seal. It declares that the authorities say something is so. And the sacraments, therefore, are a covenantal gift from God. They come from God. They are only things commanded by God to be a sign of His covenant. And this is why we have the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because they are commanded by God. So what do we see here? In conclusion, we see here that God Himself is bringing together a family. And He is doing this not just by declaration, but He is holding our hands, as it were, bringing us not just the ends, but the means. Not just salvation, but also the means of salvation through the Word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. That's why these things are so important. That's why we attend on them. That's why we guard them zealously. Because they are ways that we can see and hear from God. Thank you for being with me this this class. I hope it's been of some benefit to you. I hope it hasn't overwhelmed you with material as we tried to go quickly. I hope that in years to come, I can tug on your elbow and you'll spit out the four elements of a covenant. And then give me a little asymmetrical synergism on the side. Um, All of this material is up on the website. All the lectures will be. um, All of the audio will be. All of the handouts will be. And if you have questions in weeks and months to come, feel free to ask.